0: change is hard. Oregon's legislature is about to see a boatload of change, with different people set to lead the House, Senate, and the Governor's office in the span of the next year. It's a fascinating time in Salem. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with You Oregonian. Before we start, a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pacific Source Health Plans, for supporting the show. Up next, Hillary Baroud, state government reporter for The Oregonian and Oregon Live, who explains all the retirements, appointments, and moving chairs. We talked about Peter Courtney and Tina Koteck's legacies, who may, or in Kotex's case likely will, succeed them, the governor's race and Betsy Johnson's presence there, and the legislative session starting February 1st. There's a ton to unpack. Here's our conversation. Hilary Baroud, thanks so much for coming back on the show.
1: Sure. Good to be here.
0: Hillary. everything in our world feels you know, unprecedented, and that word is bandied about all the time. But down in the legislature, down in Salem, where uh, you've covered uh, for a long time, there's a changing of the guard underway. Both Tina Kotek and Peter Courtney are stepping down from their posts atop the House and Senate. The governor is going to be different in, down the line here. It's a lot of change. I'm wondering... Have you seen anything like this in in your time covering the Capitol?
1: Sure. Well, um, now I guess that would be maybe going on seven or eight years that I've been covering Oregon state government. Uh, So no, I (laughs) haven't. Um, and you and I have both been around in Oregon during a period of time when John Kitzhaber, our former governor was a consistent figure in state government. So, If we think back to the 90s, he was the governor then. He left for a couple Mm -hmm. of terms, as he uh, would be required to do due to our term limits. But it's not an absolute cap. So then he came back in 2010 and also ran and won in 2014. So all that led to this being the first year because Governor Kate Brown then succeeded him and was elected and reelected. This is the first open governor's race year that we've had in more than a decade as a result of all of that. So we knew that was going to be competitive and and a lot of people would be interested in that open seat. But then on top of that, triggered by it partly, we've had the uh, longest serving House Speaker Tina Kotek leave. Um, That position, she will be stepping down both as Speaker and from her House seat. And she's running for governor. So that's how that was connected. She's a Democrat. And then Peter Courtney, who's just been this long-running figure, really shaping the legislature, how it operated as a whole, even as a Senate president. He is also going to be stepping down as Senate president after his term ends in January uh, 2023 he's the longest serving lawmaker in Oregon,
0: so that's a lot of change and before we get into kind of what it all means for those specific seats, I mean any organization having a people in leadership for a long time, that's a lot of stability right we're We're dealing with so much instability still, just with the uncertainty of the pandemic and um you know masks and you know all kinds of health policies still. In effect, and controversies. I mean, like, do we have any idea how, how this is all going to shake out politically to have, you know, two very significant figures leaving bodies they've led for so long in the legislature?
1: Well, the interesting thing will be whether Kotech is actually gone from Oregon politics or just moves (laughs) up to a new seat, (laughs) a new, a new seat. And just depending on, which function we're talking about, um, it can be a more or less powerful position, even as the as the state's chief executive. If Gordon voters were to select her for governor this year, you know, in the primary first, which she'd have to win in order to go on to the general election with all voters. As the Speaker of the House, she has been tremendously powerful in shaping the legislation that gets passed, whether that is um zoning laws, trying to address Oregon's crisis with lack of affordable housing. And mm-hmm. I mean, affordable broadly, not just for people who have low incomes, but um, for middle income Oregonians and then other housing and homelessness type of aid that's been really important to her. So she's had a big role in policy and budgets as the Speaker of the House and the Governor does not get to pass a budget. She can ask for things and advocate for it. Um, So she'll be around, um, potentially, we'll have to see. Peter Courtney, that will be a big change, not having him in the legislature anymore. Um, He's really well known for, even with Democratic majorities, making sure that that lawmakers in the Senate would have at least one Republican vote for any legislation Mm -hmm. to actually bring it up for a vote. So choosing to restrict the legislation that they would consider. um, So that would always mean that some of the priorities uh, of the more left leaning portion of the democratic caucus, those might not get through. And he was the person there that was stopping those. So whether that was rent control, national popular vote is one that he ultimately did allow to come up for a vote in the last couple of years after blocking it. Um, that's going to be a major change and plenty of Republicans in the Senate saw him as a moderating force on that.
0: And his legacy, which you're kind of already talking about how he, how he governed and how he led that chamber, but he was kind of known as someone or is known as someone, right, Hillary, who knows that building and loves that building both physically and metaphysically, I guess better than anyone, right?
1: Yeah. He's known as someone who loves the legislature, loves the process, loves democratic with a little D government. You could look at that a number of ways, Certainly, uh, in these times when we have a lot of people who don't trust government, he was coming at it from a, a different perspective of how much government could do for people, how connected people are to their government and government service as this higher calling. Mm-hmm. He has his name on a number <laughs> of things in Oregon and kind of could symbolize the institution and maybe in some ways was kind of slow moving himself in terms of recognizing some of the some of the real problems that were coming up in the Capitol, such as sexual harassment, which to be clear was a long running problem there, but there was more attention to it and the way that the public and lawmakers and staff at the Capitol and, and lobbyists expect it to be addressed has changed. And he kind of, if you think of him as an institution in some ways himself, was really um, slow to to do what a lot of people felt needed to be done to address that head on.
0: What do we know about uh, who might be standing in the wings to take the gavel as Senate president from uh Peter Courtney?
1: I think the only name I've heard consistently so far is the Senate majority leader. So a Democrat, um, Rob Wagner, he's from Lake Oswego. He is a former, I believe it was um, community colleges lobbyist. Mm -hmm. And he's been there for, I want to say a couple terms now. Another name that comes up is Elizabeth Steiner Hayward. And I haven't heard of anyone else um, so far who is in serious consideration. And there's been a lot of turnover in the Senate as well. Just a couple of years ago, I lose track now because so much has happened, including multiple special sessions in the last couple of years. Right. And, but and the global pandemic. <laughs> it's
0: hard to keep track of time. You're forgiven.
1: <laughs> yeah. And there's been a lot of turnover in the Senate and Senate leadership. So one of the departures in the last less than six months was Ginny Burdick. She was a longtime um, Democratic senator from the Portland area. She stepped down because Governor Kate Brown appointed her to a power, Northwest Power Planning Council. And she had been a majority leader at one point, too. So it could always be a factor in limiting how many people could uh, vie for that Senate president leadership position that There are not as many um, senior members in the legislature or, excuse me, in the Senate at this point. There are certainly some, but there are a lot of new going to be a lot of new faces.
0: Yeah. And some of those um, young up and comers, whether it's, uh, you know, Shamia Fagan, she is now the secretary of state. So some people who might have been in the wings to take that power no longer in the chamber
1: and she was very quickly moved through the senate i don't think she served a full term yeah
0: exactly so um but regardless you were in an election year is it is it clear that i know nothing is clear at this point but democrats seem like they're going to keep control of both chambers does that seem like you know the early yeah i think they
1: will i haven't heard anyone expecting that they would lose control of both chambers but there is some speculation that in the house anyway they could lose a seat or two um 2022 nationally is expected to be a good year for republicans for a variety of reasons it could be a good year for Republicans here, including in the governor's race. Um, some people see that, see this as their best chance in part because of the national dynamics, but also because we have an unaffiliated candidate running this year. So she's going to draw some votes. And a big question is um, how she draws those votes, whether it's from Democrats, Republicans, some of both. Um, and in terms of the legislature, I don't think I don't think that Democrats would lose their majorities in either chamber. They currently have super majorities, but it's it's gotten closer in the house to that kind of getting eaten away a little bit. They lost one seat in the last legislative election two years ago. Um, And some people are thinking that they might lose another seat or two in the Senate. They actually, I think, shored up their districts and redistricting. So if anything in future elections, it was looking like based on our analysis that the state Senate might get more democratic.
0: Okay. So, um, you kind of alluded to Senator Betsy Johnson, um, who, uh, is no longer, did she formally stepped down from her seat in the Senate to run. She did, right?
1: She did yeah. step down and democratic precinct people. And then County commissioners have, finished their process to appoint a successor for her. It's a Democrat because under Oregon law, uh, the party who held the seat, they get to select several candidates to be appointed. So whether it was Republican that held it, then the candidates to fill it would be Republican Democratic held seat would be Democrats picking who the candidates would be to fill out the, the remainder of the term. And that is one of the new faces that in this case, um, is a young woman with no previous political experience hmm. um, who was appointed oh, other than <laughs> <laughs> other than she formerly worked as a legislative staffer.
0: Okay, um, I honestly don't know how to keep track of all this. There's so many moving chairs and moving pieces, but um, we'll get to the, the Betsy Johnson governor's race in a, in a second, but I want to go back to um, Speaker Kotek. You kind of talked about some of what, she accomplished and helped push through that chamber during her time, but in many ways, her legacy—if we want to use that word—will be her platform that she's running for the governor's mansion. But anything else that you'd want to say about about Speaker Kotek and what she, you know, what she got done and how she's viewed by her colleagues and uh, those uh, on the other side of the aisle uh, during her time there?
1: Well, one thing that. Speaker Kotek uh, was definitely will be uh, going down in the record books for. Us. She was the first openly lesbian House Speaker in the nation. Mm-hmm. So, um, definitely setting that record for Oregon. You know, I was I was not there for her full time as Speaker because it was so lengthy. But I think one of the things I remember her for doing as Speaker. Um and I and I went into a little bit more detail about some of her signature achievements uh, when i when I'd written about that. Was that a week ago, two weeks ago? It's hard <laughs> to keep track with how things are moving so fast it'll be three times three weeks uh by the time this this podcast comes out. She did play a big role in getting Oregon's minimum wage passed, and that was around the time the advocates were pushing for a $15 minimum wage nationwide. We know that didn't happen.
0: Um, Right. The fight for 15.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And and now we're several years past that to the point where $15 doesn't buy what it used to. Um, But Oregon got pretty close to that in terms of the top, um, top amount that the minimum wage would be phased into by the time it's fully phased in. Um, And I'm sorry that I forget exactly when that happened, but we also, it's, it's interesting we have this regional minimum wage in Oregon, which was part of the compromise that was done to, um, to get that policy into law. And so that was important to her. I think that along with the affordable housing policies that she's pursued and help for people who are going through homelessness kind of shows that she's been focused on, um, on helping people who are struggling the most in Oregon, something that she and Peter Courtney would probably both cite as a highlight. And I think Courtney deserves some particular credit for is getting this new business tax passed in 2019 to generate more money for Oregon education. Um, that was Courtney's idea as far as how they approached building the political will for that new tax. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, Kotech, Kotech uh, really had to twist some arms in the end to help get that through the house. Um, it was part of a deal that a lot of Democrats were really reluctant to and, and, To some degree, Republicans too, um, to pass that included a small reduction in how much money goes to public employees' pensions or redirecting it to the pension find
0: yeah that's obviously a, a politically sensitive issue for you know a big chunk of the of the base of of the democrats and in, in oregon so we do know uh, about who's gonna uh, take the the speaker's gavel um succeeding tina Kotec and this is a a guy um dan rayfield who a lot of oregonians may not know um very much about i mean what can you tell us about about uh about um soon-to-be Speaker Rayfield, who um, is expected to be confirmed as the session begins.
1: Yeah, so um, Dan Rayfield, just to be clear, uh, we can't, we can't uh, really predict how the vote's going to go because he has to be, at this point, he has been nominated by Democrats. I don't know by what margin, uh, but it was just a, a secret caucus vote, secret in the sense that the caucus held this vote behind closed doors on who to nominate um, since Democrats have the majority Mm -hmm. in the house. They, if they vote as a unit could certainly be the decision, decision makers about who the next speaker would be, but it's going to take place in an open vote with the Republicans there too. When the legislature meets on February 1st, starting February 1st for several weeks. Anyway, in the caucus vote that happened earlier this month, the vote was actually secret, too, in terms of they just had this system for calculating the votes. So not even the members of the caucus told me that that they knew what portion of the vote went to Rayfield. He was up against Janelle Bynum, who is a several term um, lawmaker now in the House from Happy mm-hmm. Valley. She is black. If she were to win as speaker, she would be Oregon's first Black House speaker, but it doesn't seem like that's going to happen now. Rayfield is in a power powerful position already as co-chair of the legislature's Ways and Means Committee. And so that's where all the budget bills go through. Um, billions of dollars just in state general fund tax money from our income taxes and um, billions from Oregon Lottery. And so he's one of just two, typically two people. Um, it's been three some years previously, but two people who are making the final call on the state budgets, um, working with other leaders like the speaker and and Senate president. So he's been in a pretty powerful position. He's known as a good fundraiser. He's an attorney, um, and young father from Corvallis and Rayfield is, is someone who seems to get along uh, with a lot of lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. He has been talked about as someone who was interested in running for secretary of state in the past. And so he would um, kind of in line with that propose good government um, legislation. I have to say in recent years, it hasn't tended to go anywhere. <laughs> um, Perhaps not shockingly, back in, I think it was 2017, he had a bill that would have actually required lobbyists in Oregon to say what bills they were lobbying on. It died. <laughs> a fellow Democrat, um, actually, Ginny Burdick, um, who, who's now gone, um, she'd killed it near the end of a session and, and he hasn't, uh, I think he mentioned that he brought it back sometime in the last couple of years, but, mm it never had enough momentum that I ever heard that it was going anywhere. Um, this last year in 2021, he was trying to negotiate some kind of contribution limits in Oregon for political donations because we have zero, (laughs) we have zero state level, um, contribution limits, which makes even legislative races really expensive, easily a million dollars for the contentious ones. Um, just even on, on one side, I think sometimes, and that also went nowhere. And the, um, the, the interests on both sides that tend to support Democrats and Republicans had a big say, uh, in shaping the proposals Hmm. that would have determined how much they could, they could spend on these races. And they just didn't agree. (laughs) that there should be well limits. it'll be
0: interesting uh, if and when he's uh confirmed if he gets that uh gavel whether that's an issue he, he picks up again well let's take a quick break and we'll come back and talk just a, a little bit more with hillary Baroud from the oregonian and oregon live Okay, Hillary, the big, uh, elephant in the room, I guess, is the governor's race. Um, we talked about Tina Kotek. We talked about Betsy Johnson. There's also, uh, Treasurer Tobias Reed. Um, the Republican field is packed, including, um, another member of the legislative, uh, caucus that we haven't talked about yet. Um, then there's <laughs> Nick Kristoff, uh, the New York Times, um, former journalist who is waiting in the wings for some sort of, decision from the Supreme court, um, on his residency. What, uh, what else am I missing? What else should people know at this time? Just about this really phenomenally interesting race.
1: Uh, what are you missing? Uh, I think you pretty much summed it up there, at least in terms of the front runners. So we talked about a little bit earlier, this could be potentially a really good year for Republicans, In Oregon, they typically don't have. Well, I should say Oregon is referred to a lot of times as a blue Mm -hmm. state and Democrats have had a comfortable margin um, in governor's races for a while now, but it's still not it's still not a state where you're going to see a 20 point divide. Um, or something like that between a Democratic and Republican candidate for governor in the state or secretary of state or anything. A lot of times we're talking about less than 10 points. And what is going to make this year interesting is not only will you have that potential impact from Republicans nationally having a good year and maybe good turnout, there's also going to be uh, Betsy Johnson, who is a longtime Democrat, but she is, um, you could call her either a moderate Democrat or conservative Democrat, depending on which issue mm-hmm. you're talking about. Uh, she is running as a non-affiliated candidate in the governor's race, which means she'll be on the November ballot not not having to really spend money directly in the primary that the Democrats and Republicans have to go through, but she'll probably be wanting to build name recognition. Um, and she's she's certainly campaigning now. She's already stepped down last year so that she could focus right. on running for governor. That will definitely shake up the race. And right now what I'm starting to look at is how... How we can learn anything if at all um if we can if there are really takeaways even from other states that have had uh similar governor's races, and for example, if we look back at Maine, I think their most recent um, three way governor's race in a general election was back in twenty fourteen, and things are just so different now in terms of how Republicans and Democrats probably identify and the degree to which they're willing to vote for an independent. Um, mm-hmm. and there are just specific factors that we have going on in our state. It's all going to make it really interesting to see what
0: happens. Are there front runners in the democratic and Republican field at this point? Um, or is it still too early to say,
1: well, I haven't seen good polling on this. I know that there's a lot of polling going on and the polling that people think that you should pay attention to can depend uh based on who you're talking to. But front runners in the primaries. Um I think people would generally say Tina Kotek, obviously, because she has been a longtime House speaker, and I'm talking about now in the Democratic primary. Tina Kotek, Tobias Reed is a state treasure and he's running in that race too. And then Nick Kristoff, the former New York times columnist just because he, he has a fair amount of name recognition um, just from people who've heard about him already as sort of a, I don't know if we'd want to call him a celebrity columnist or media personality, yeah. but he kind of is. is yeah. <laughs> um, and so those are the three most well-known candidates in the Democratic primary, even though for a lot of Oregonians, they're just not going to know who these people are at this point in the race. Um, Tina Kotec also has a history of locking down the most important um, Democratic donors, which would be the public employee unions and some of the left-leaning groups that would um that are part of a, a coalition that often works together in Oregon elections. So League of Conservation Voters, Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. On the Republican side, it's been it's been interesting to think about who would be a front runner over the last year because there were people getting into the race like Stan Pulliam, who is, I think he's an insurance executive, but his Position that he's known for as being the mayor of Sandy, and he's kind of taken this anti COVID restriction stance mm-hmm. that is that could be beneficial to candidates in a Republican primary. And um, there is a Republican political consultant, Bridget Barton. She was fundraising pretty well or pulling in a lot of money. Then we have, <laughs> I'm trying to think of all of them, Jessica Gomez. I don't think that she. There is some skepticism among Republican political folks that I talked to that she had a good chance. But she is kind of in an interesting position as a Southern Oregon um, Republican woman who's a business owner. And she had previously run for a state Senate seat down there. Um, And she's also Latina. And then finally, the development in that race that could really make it interesting is Christine Drazen from Canby, who has been the, the Republican House Republican leader. She got into the race uh, towards the end of 2021. And she has a potential to be a front runner there as well. She has shown since she was a Republican, Leader that she is pretty politically savvy. Um, Under her leadership, Republicans in 2020 picked up a net um, a net one seat that they added to their caucus by winning a northwest Oregon, like the Astoria area, House seat.
0: Do we get a sense of whether the Republicans um, and will be running under kind of a Trumpist? banner in the primary. Um, Does that seem to be a trend that we're going to expect to see in Oregon? Or is it, you know, a little bit different here than in other primaries?
1: The Oregon Republican primary is probably going to have a lot of similarity with other states, regardless of how blue our voters are overall or purple. The Republican primaries are just always different. And that's part of what we've got going on with voters in both parties um, moving more towards um, kind of a, a party-based direction versus um versus having some people who are in the middle. And in Oregon, there's definitely been strong pushback from Republicans against mask mandates. We have had some of the strongest mask mandates in the nation for a long time, and vaccination requirements. Um, lots of focus on making choices even, you know, among lawmakers who have probably gotten vaccinated themselves, um, Republican lawmakers. Right. And it'll be interesting to see how much they talk about Trump and Trump's uh, position on election integrity and issues like that. Christine Drazen hasn't been, out there publicly um, pushing those kinds of talking points. But I think that what she does or says during the primary is going to be really interesting. And, and Oregon Republicans have had both the anti-mask mandate and those kinds of um, threads going on at the same time that, you know, Christine Drazen got her caucus last year too unite to vote out this lawmaker, Mike Mm Neerman, who basically planned and then helped make a reality Oregon's own Capitol incursion that happened when these demonstrators, some of whom were armed with rifles, uh, got into a door of the Capitol that Neerman opened for them during a 2020 special session. And so Christine Drazen, got her caucus united to vote this guy out expel him in the first example of that ever happening um in the oregon legislature
0: so that's a feather in her hat that she can bring up uh uh, during the campaign uh, to show her you know bona fides on on both sides that'll be interesting um well, I don't know whether she'll.
1: <laughs> yeah, that'll be interesting. I It'll don't be know interesting to see would... how
0: she uses that or if she uses well, it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, mm-hmm. And then obviously on the other chamber, um, you know, Republican uh, Senator Dallas Hurd has been you know, extremely outspoken and um, ripping his mask off in chambers multiple times. So I mean, things uh, in Oregon have not been quiet here here for the last couple years politically um, on that front. So it'll be interesting to see what happens.
1: Well, Andrew, if Dallas Heard has not said that he's running for governor, but we did report on one poll where there was a notable portion of Republican voters that would support dallas Heard if he were running for governor
0: we certainly have not seen or heard the last of him he's a he's a young guy as well um before i let you go because you're so busy and you're being very generous with your time here um the legislature is meeting again here um by the time people listen to, to this this will be about a week out um what's on the docket uh for, for this session? And, and is this a full regular session or a short session? Oregonians might have trouble keeping track of, of the difference there.
1: Sure. Yeah, we've had a lot of special sessions. So then they almost start to sound they almost start to feel like regular sessions because they're happening regularly since the pandemic. <laughs> exactly. um, we had three of them in 2020. And then we had Was it two? Yeah, we had two in 2021. I had to think about that for a minute. One was for redistricting (laughs) though. Um,
0: Right, right.
1: This is a regular annual session. It is a shorter session that's five weeks long because Oregon used to have these long sessions every other year. And then we changed the system a number of years ago. Uh, I believe Peter Courtney was actually instrumental in pushing for that. And so now we have these five-week sessions in even numbered years based on the idea that every other year isn't enough for a modern uh, state that might need to make adjustments to its laws more frequently. And, you know, it's, it's uh, tough to kind of predict what might characterize this session. We've had so many special sessions that it feels like they've done a lot of things. They've already got a lot of things taken care of. We don't have a budget emergency. We're still swimming in, um, federal aid stimulus money that came through last year. They haven't spent it all. Um, we still have just these record breaking or estimate breaking, um, state revenue forecasts where taxpayers have been, been, um, ending up, uh, earning more income and paying more taxes than economists were expecting. So we don't have any emergencies like that. Um, And they already had a special session to approve more housing aid in late 2021. There are some ideas still floating out there that are pretty big or interesting, like lawmakers proposing to do a, um, a stimulus payment to private sector frontline workers, because so far the state only approved, and actually lawmakers didn't do this governor Kate Brown did it in union negotiations. Um, so far the state's only paid out, um, frontline worker bonuses to, um, state, state employees. So there's a proposal out there to do that for private sector, like grocery workers and, and healthcare people who, who kept on going to work during the, the worst of the pandemic. Um, There is a revived proposal to get rid of Oregon's exemption for overtime pay for farm workers. Um, I would say that there's like a number of, there are a number of interesting proposals out there, but there's not one overarching thing that I could say yet that this this session is going to be about.
0: Okay. Well, um, there's a ton to, ton to digest and it's an election year and things are about to get uh, even more interesting down there in Salem and around Oregon. Um, thanks so much for helping us make sense of it. Of course. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the program. And tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.